0: Hey everybody, J.B. here. Thank you for joining me here on the Trap Rock 101 podcast from Pirates and Poets. Appreciate you tuning in and checking it out and supporting us. Uh, Today's guest, episode number two. Uh, This episode features Tall Paul Bobble from uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Paul is someone that I've known of for probably 15 or 16 years. Known personally for over a decade. Um... And he is a really important figure in the history of the trap rock genre, trap rock community. Um, he is definitely part of, a, if, if Scott Nickerson and Jerry Diaz were the, the first wave, the first generation, uh, Paul is definitely smack dab in the middle of the second wave or the second generation of trap rockers. Um, he got involved in the community as a member of St. Somewhere, which is probably the first like, super group in trap rock that was performing original music. Um, after Saint somewhere kind of broke up, uh, he continued as a solo artist, uh, also involved in lots of duos trios bands he 's been in, involved in a whole lot of different projects um, it 's interesting to hear him talk about all the stuff he 's been involved with and, and about how saint somewhere really uh, really set the tone for a lot of things that happened in trap rock in the uh, late '90s and early 2000s um, Again, Paul has been involved in the community for for over twenty years now he's been a, a performing as a professional musician for over thirty and uh in addition to all his uh his performances and uh recordings songs he's written himself as part of his different projects, he's also really important in that he was kind of the figure that introduced um introduced a lot of the country acts that are part of our community um I think it's safe to say that that uh you know uh, homemade Wine and Southern Draw Band and Drop Dead Dangerous would probably not be part of our world if it wasn't for their connection to uh, to Paul Bobble. So, uh, yeah, he's a pretty important guy when you want to start talking about our community and our history. Uh, all those, uh, who would have thought, I mean, I talk about this in the interview with him, you'll hear it in a few minutes, but who would have thought that all these really important bands in our community would have come out of East Tennessee? Florida makes a ton of sense. Texas Gulf Coast makes sense. Uh, but all these great acts, starting with St. Somewhere, came out of East Tennessee, and that's uh, that's pretty incredible. So uh hope you enjoy this conversation. I really did. And uh want to remind you that uh, this is episode number two. This is the last free episode that you'll be able to check out start to finish. Um, if you want to subscribe to the Trapperock Rock 101 podcast, head over to Podbean.com or download the Podbean app. Search for Trapperock Rock 101 and you can uh, you can subscribe for the low cost of $6 a month. We will publish a new episode every Wednesday. And you can hear it. Uh, you, you put that app on your phone, and then you can listen to it just like you would any other kind of music that you can listen to on your phone. Music, any other kind of audio. So I uh, appreciate your support. Let me know if you have any questions or suggestions or just want to tell me that I'm crazy whacked out. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, or you can send me an email, jb at net. I uh, honestly rather... You email me, but you can always send me a Facebook message as well. So uh, here we go. I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation. Have as much as I did. Episode number two of the Trap Rock 101 podcast. Here is Tall Paul Bobble.
1: Um, I was playing in Knoxville at a bar that was called Daryl's. And uh, I would play from 9 o'clock until midnight. And there were these three guys that would play at a Mexican restaurant less than two miles from the place that I played. And it was a steel drum player, a guitar player, singer, and a percussionist. And they called themselves Saint Somewhere. And they were playing on Sunday nights for the Parrothead Club in Knoxville. And then there was another guy who played the midnight to dawn shift at yet another bar um, that was still within that three-mile radius. And what people in Knoxville would do was they would start out at six or seven o'clock and go see this um, trio of, of Jimmy Buffett sort of style music. And and that crowd was spearheaded by the Paradise Club in Knoxville. And then when that show was over, that entire group of people would traipse over to Daryl's where I was playing from nine to 12. And then when I got done, whoever was still sober enough to get to the next place would go to see Dave Landio play. And that was a Sunday night. You'd start at six. You'd end <laughs> when you passed out. And wow. seriously, oftentimes it was four or five in the morning before we'd get home. And, and it, just, it just kind of built this camaraderie between Matt and Quincy and Todd. And see, Todd and I had played together as a duo prior to that for a long, long time. And Todd and Dave Landio, the late night guy, played together as well. A lot of times Todd would play the show with St. Somewhere, then come to my show for a while and then leave and go sit up and play with Dave that night too. Wow. And Todd and Dave wrote a song called Colorado sky, which eventually ended up being on the first St. Somewhere album.
0: And what Um, was the time period we're talking about here? This was probably
1: 97, 96, 97 and through there. And, um, as, as the as the parrotheads, as all the crowd sort of sort of latched onto what Matt and Quincy and Todd were doing, they decided that they needed to make a record, and they didn't want to do too many cover tunes. They wanted to do original stuff, and Todd had written this song, "Colorado Sky," um, with Dave Landio. and then Matt had a couple songs that he worked worked on, and Quincy had some lyrics some rhythmic ideas but had never written an American song so Quincy came to me and said man I want to write some songs would you you know write with me and I was like absolutely so Matt was writing Quincy and I were writing Todd was writing and we created the songs that became the first Saint Somewhere album with the cover tune being uh Southern Cross And as they were putting this first record together, they brought me in to to write and to play. And they brought Dave Landio in, who wrote Colorado Sky, to sing harmony and to play. And then Todd Sheely, who, who has this amazing ability to reach out to people that none of us would be able to connect with, somehow got in touch with Fingers Taylor and asked Greg if he would play on the record. And he said yes. So we had a handful of songs, we had a great group of local musicians, because they asked Crawdaddy to play on the record too, um, and then all of a sudden they had Fingers Taylor. So, so Mike played on a couple of tunes, and Greg played on the stuff that we recorded in Nashville. And um, a lot of the stuff was done in Knoxville, and I put together a, a session here in Nashville, and we made the first St. Summer record, still not knowing anything about Meaning of the Minds, or any of the festivals, or any of that stuff. And then the Parrothead Club in Knox just took all this momentum uh, on their shoulders and put together a festival. And this was early 1998, I imagine. And they called it Tropic Fest. And they hired Fingers. And uh, St. Somewhere was Fingers' band. So we opened the show as St. Somewhere. And then we had a guy named Greg Bridgewater, who was a singer songwriter out of Atlanta. And then they had a one, a the duo, um, Jeff and Scott, Jeff and Scott came in and played the second act. And then say somewhere, got back on stage and we backed up fingers Taylor and we had this, and it was a, an amazing event that was not well attended. Um, they probably lost their butts on that event, but it gave us a little taste of what a pair festival might be like and then the um, head of security for phip was part of the knoxville club and he asked us if we would consider coming to key west to play me in the mines and again we were so naive we had no idea what that was all about but of course key west heck yeah we've got a new record i think there's taylor's on the record and he's the coral reefer And we're going to play for paradise in Key West and we're like, that's a great idea. So we, and there uh, was a
0: point in time where fingers was like the core reefer to a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And he, and he and Jimmy were, you know, kind of the signature sounds of that band. Um, you know, long before uh, Robert was in the band and long before Mike became the band leader, it was, it was kind of fingers and, and Jimmy and whoever they had on guitar. And they've had some amazing guitar players, you know, we know Roger Bartlett now, but here in Nashville, um, Marshall Chapman was in the band at some point. Um, oh, I'm drawing a blank
0: now. Uh, uh, the guy who's manages high South. He was, yeah, he was yeah, a guitar yep, player yep. before Peter. And, yeah. And Tim
1: Kreckle was also a lead guitar player. So there, you know, a lot of Nashville cats were, were coral reefers, but Greg and Jimmy were kind of the, the constants early on. And, um, to have him on our record was, was, and his stories in the studio were so cool. I mean, (laughs) like he said, can I just go in and play piano? And we're like, you play piano? (laughs) And he said, yeah, they call me fingers because I played piano first. And I'm going like, well, hell, if you can play harmonica like this, what is your piano playing like? And it was spectacular. Wow. But his stories were great. and, And he liked us. You know, we were just, Young and irreverent enough to fit in with him, and uh, we wrote one of the songs on the record. We wrote with him on the spot in, in the in the studio uh, in Nashville. The St. somewhere, boogie, was him just writing a song with us playing um, spontaneously in the studio. <laughs> crazy, but you know, still so we went to Key West and um, we had rooms and we were booked to play. At uh, Sloppy Joe, Hog's Breath, Street Fest. Now, keep in mind that we were rank rookies. I mean, we were green, and we didn't know that the Street Fest was this gigantic thing. We didn't know how the the, the lore of Sloppy Joes and, and the history of Hog's Breath. We were just booked into these places, and we would get there, <laughs> and we were getting all the top gigs right off the bat. And we were a good band. I mean, I don't want to sound a braggart but we between the the level of talent and sheer energy we, we were a great show band and um we, we took the we we turned a lot of heads you know with our enthusiasm we had quincy on steel drums and aside from robert they'd never heard a guy play like that right you know and matt was a great front man we had great songs and of course crawdaddy you know you put him in front of people, and he's going to be laying in some girl's lap playing upside down and <laughs> you know all that stuff just happened and uh and we were you know like like uh jim 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 Morris Sonny Jim, they had written some original songs, but n- none of the bands had been either brave enough or had thought of it yet to write original songs. We were the first I think, I mean, somebody might change, you know, the opinion, but we were the first band that played a lot of original songs and some Parrotheads love that. And some Parrotheads didn't because we didn't know a ton of Buffett songs. Yeah. Um, we could play them, but we didn't have them under our belt like we did some of the other stuff. And, um, but having the original songs kind of set us apart and that helped and, uh, 98, we, we left there with our head in the clouds because we, we, you know, people loved us. We love them. I've got pictures of me and, uh, Quincy and Robert Greenwich standing on the side of the street. Robert came to almost all of our shows. He he would be hanging somewhere in the side or in the back, just watching Quincy. Um, Nadira snuck out a couple times to listen. Um, fingers, of course, you know, cause he was on our record came over and, and listened several times and uh, it was just a great experience for us. And we got home and uh, and we turned around and did probably the biggest show in the Knoxville area, which was called Boomsday, um, which is the big Labor Day thing. And so we had all these great shows back to back to back. And uh, that was a great way to kick off what later became a trop rock band
0: yeah, one, one, of the, one of the first, probably, um, uh, uh, you know, A1A and Key West, a band, but y'all might have been the third, yeah. what you would call a trop rock band.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you know, like, they, they didn't call it that yet. Right. Um, but A1A was, was as, as good as they are and were, um, you know, they were still mostly doing um, Buffett songs and some really cool eclectic covers yeah they weren't doing many of their own songs. Um, the land sharks, I believe were down there um, that year I, th- I think and but again, they weren't playing original songs, yeah, and um I think what set us apart a little bit was our willingness to play our original songs. you know they might have had them uh, under their belts, but they weren't playing them as much as we were. We were
0: pushing that stuff, yeah, so how long? I got involved in 2004, 2005 and some, somewhere was pretty much done by then. I, I never got to see him live. So it was really a pretty quick, but yeah, very I'd intense
1: three or beat. four years. Matt was in the band, I think probably three or four years. And then when, when Matt quit uh, Quincy, um, it, the band changed of course, and, and became more of a kind of a jam band, but, but still playing the original songs. And Quincy was, was the leader of that band. Um, and it was just hard hard to, to, to be the band that they were. People expected Matt to be the guy up front. And and I, I will tell you again, he was a dynamic front man. You know, he was quick, quick-witted. He knew the lyrics to every song and could handle the drunkest person with, with uh, kid gloves. And it was just it was <laughs> hilarious to watch him work. And, uh, so the band wasn't the same without him and probably went another, another year or two under the name thing somewhere with Quincy kind of trying to guide things, but then that didn't last either. And then it went away.
0: But you stuck with the Parrothead, head Rock community anyway. It wasn't called the Trap Rock anything back then, but.
1: Right, right. Well, um, you know, uh, Jeff Allen and 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 uh, Big Ed and, you know, the guys that were doing radio shows liked what we had done. And then they liked what Mike Crawdaddy had done and what I had done on our own. And, you know, we kept playing for the Knoxville Paradise Club. Uh, I kept going to Atlanta to play for that club. Um, there was a great bar in, in Atlanta called Hemingway's and um, A1A would play there and Jeff would, Jeff Pike would play there as a solo and uh, St. Summer had played there and I continued to go down and play there. And then um, Mike and I got, got hired to play several festivals as a duo. And I kept hounding Alex Leist, who was booking Ph- a meeting of mines um, to, to let us have a slot down there. And, and his point, which was very well taken was that, you know, we're full and, and even though you've got a great connection, let me, let me find a spot. Let me work you guys in. And uh, to his credit, when he worked us in, he, uh, he gave us a great slot. We did, uh, we did what used to be called the list serve party. And, uh, I remember it, that. It the virtual parroted club eventually. Um, but the list serve party was um, Jim Morris, Sonny Jim, John Frenzy, Doyle Grisham, and me and Crawdaddy. You know, That's I mean, a lot of talent. What better way to get introduced to the paradads as a duo than being on stage with Doyle sitting right next to me, um, playing pedal steel, and oh, and, uh, and Sunny Jim and uh, John Frenzy. I mean, holy cow! Mike and I just waltzed into that situation and said, "Okay, here we are."
0: <laughs> yeah, I think when I first got uh, involved in the community. Um, I associated you and crawdaddy very closely together. Yep. Um, that's very good. So this would have been oh you know, five oh six oh seven in in yep. that range. You know, yep. um, living in Arkansas where I lived at the time, I just kind of assumed that y'all were a full time duo. I think you know because well I in the Paradise world, the time.
1: That's, you know we, we only did that. You know, like Mike and I didn't play with anybody else really, other than the songwriter stuff. You know, but when we'd go out and do paradise stuff, it was always him and I. And uh, we were, we loved getting up on stage with other people and um, Jimmy Maraventano senior, you know, would love to get us on stage because he would point to Saint somewhere as one of the reasons he got into trap rock, you know, watching us play inspired Jimmy and the parrots. Right. So he loved having me and Crawdaddy on stage with him because, you know, the energy as good as it was would change when Mike and I would get up there and And uh, we'd play stuff that he loved from the St. Somewhere days that his band didn't play. And uh, so that was always great fun for us. And again, to be on stage with the reigning rowdy ass in the Parrothead world, Jimmy and the Parrots, at that time, (laughs) that didn't hurt us either, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we we, we ended up being in the right place at the right time a lot of times.
0: So was there ever a point for you, when you looked at the, the parrothead world, the trap rock community and said, you know, this is, this is where I belong. I, it, or is it just well, kind of always the very
1: beginning? I mean, again, we, we, we made so many great friends that very first year in 98. And then every festival we went to, we made friends with people that have become our lifelong friends to this day. You know, the people that put on the new England Parrothead club, has given us 10 or 15 of our closest friends right now the people that put on midwinter meltdown in Manassas have given us 10 or 15 more of our best friends in the world right now and those friendships have lasted like you said since 5 or 06 when Mike and I finally got to start playing the festivals and then being in the mines as a duo you know we, we, we made friends with people that have that are that are our best friends. Still. Um, and Jeff Allen was, was, a, was a big fan, and, you know, he had a radio station, and he would play our music and talk about us, and we were mentioned in the same sentence with these guys that had that been the founders of Drop Rock, you know, with Sonny Jim, Jim Morris, and John Frenzy, and all those guys that, you know, if you look at it now, those are the guys that, especially with original music, you know, those are the guys that kind of set the tone for everybody else. Right. You know, as a band, St. Somewhere did. But as singer-songwriters, those were the guys. We were on stage with them from the very beginning. Thank you, Alex
0: Leist. <laughs> that's, a, that's somebody that's on my long list for this is, uh, is Alex Leist because he put together – how long did he run Meeting the Minds? At least six or seven years.
1: Over 300 years,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think six. He's, he's uh, on my
1: list and you you'll love an interview with him he is such a character but but as 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 rowdy and all those things as as he is he also is very insightful like one i very distinctly remember one year um you know mike and i had gone down to play and of course christy and gretchen were with us and christy would get up and sing with mike and i song and we were leaving uh, Comp Republic, you no, know, we were leaving Schooner Wharf one night. And, and here comes a drunk Alex Leist on his scooter, you know, doing 100 miles an hour on, on an alley and screeches to a halt, and gravels flying everywhere. And he said, there needs to be more girls in Trap Rock. Christy, sing more. You know, and that <laughs> really started the conversation of Christy's first record. That moment, you know, drunk out behind Schooner's Wharf, was the was the impetus to us start thinking, okay, we need a Christie record. You know, because there were only one or two girls singing at all, and none of them were out there on the main stage very much. Yeah. I think Michelle was the only one that was in a band that was getting any real uh, visibility at that time. Right. And, uh, you know, Christy would get up and sing, and Lindley uh, um, was part of um, – the Calypso that's duo, you know, but that was still not just a girl singing. You know, it was a duo, right? That wasn't a duo. And it just, it, it inspired us to, to let's, let's get this record and let's, you know, let's establish Christy as an artist. And that was, that was Alex life starting that ball, you know, rolling.
0: So, uh, one of the events that I always, uh, never attended, but I always heard about it. Um, it always seemed to happen a couple of weeks after party gra, which in my world is, you know, is a, is a big mark on the calendar, um, is midwinter meltdown. That's an event that I associate you and the Calypso nuts and Dennis and Sue McCoggy with in my head. I've never been in there, but on social media, it seems like y'all have always been, uh, you know, really big, uh, vocal supporters of that event. And, uh, we would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. And
1: it's the same family atmosphere that you feel about Party Gras. It really is. I mean, I, I watch Party Gras, and I, and I see the interaction of people there, and I feel like it's the same sort of family thing that we feel about Midwinter Meltdown. And um, Jim Morris was a regular at the early midwinters. Uh, Sonny Jim's been there a lot. John Frenzy's been there a lot. And they'll probably have that same warm – Family feeling, but you're right, Tropical Soul um, and Calypso Nuts. Uh, and Mike and I, um, I'm trying to think, you know, they, they've been great about bringing in uh, Peter Mayer's play there a couple of times. Will Kimbrough's been at several of them. So they brought in other people, but that foundation of St. Somewhere and, you know, the tendrils of that that have gone into the world and the Calypso Nuts and Tropical Soul, even though. It started out as the original duo and it's been what it is now. Right. Dennis has been a part of all those shows, you know, all of them. Um, and it, it's, it is a family. And it's, it's cool because um, they have it at a hotel that basically it's their off season. And that hotel gives the Parrothead Nation carte blanche at their hotel. We have the whole hotel, we have this gigantic convention room with the stage on both ends and it's catered and you never have to leave the hotel. And it's just the coolest, most unique situation. And when, when you're off stage, you're standing in the crowd with all your friends and then you jump on stage with this band, you jump on stage with that band. And it's this, like I said, I I really would relate it to how you guys feel about party Gras. That same sort of, we're a family and, and we love each other, and we see each other away from the festival. We, we vacation with these people. Um, you know, we, we hung out with Dennis and Sue and Heather today on a, on a little uh, FaceTime. And, uh, you know, Alex has been to, to a lot of those. And, and, you know, we're all great friends. Yeah. Who, who
0: organized that event?
1: Uh, it, was, it was two couples. It was uh, Chris and TC, Chris Agan. Uh, and then Robin, Ally Taylor uh, were the two couples that were sort of the founding members. Um, Sandy but then you know, Sandy, Sandy Kaiser was part of the original group, and they've got an amazing crew around them. I mean, I could list you ten other people that right. are their right hand man and women to keep that thing going. But I think the original idea, because because it happened in a basement originally at the Taylor's house, and then it moved. To a bar for a year or two, a neighborhood bar. And then as it kept getting bigger, it eventually it ended up at the Best Western in Manassas. And it's been there for a long time.
0: Yeah. You know, I think um, I'd love to hear your opinion about this. The events that really stand the test of time and have that super loyal uh, from the artists, not just the fans, but there are, are artists that are super loyal to an event. Those events, in my opinion, usually tend to be ran by a small tight knit group of people. There's lots of great events that are ran by parrot clubs, but the event every three or four years, it tends to really change its personality as the club leaders cycle through. That Um, is exactly right. Party girl, of course for the Diaz family, um, stars, uh, stars, Alabama, which mother hen ran forever. You know, uh, sounds like the same rule applies, uh, with, with midwinter meltdown. Um, that, that,
1: and that, and I, that, I love that thing about ours too, because, you know, we got to go, Mike and I got to go to that many, many times, and Christy got to go with me and with girls. Um, yeah, Starshell in Alabama was a great event. And you're right, that sort of the guidance of a, of a handful of people, um, it, can, it can make or break, you know, that, that group of people, if they've got the right attitude, can make an event. yeah you know, and, and you're right. If, if that, if that directing board changes, it can really shift how people view that event.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, sometimes, and I, th- I think probably all of us that work on the music side of it feel this way. Sometimes we look at an event that we've never been invited to. And we say, how do I get into that? They, they don't like me or whatever. No, it really is, is, is every event has that core group. Like, like you we were talking about at Midwinter Belt Dine, you bring in other people, but I think every successful event has that core group of artists that, yep. that make it happen, that the organizers know they can depend on year in, year out to pass the culture of the event on to people who are coming in as a one-time thing, you know?
1: Yep. So, we did, um, we did a parade cruise with, with Jerry and ha- had a great time and he did, he did ask us if we could get to um, party girl one year and for whatever reason, I just, I could not do it. And I've regretted that ever since because I, I do see those shows and I love New Orleans. My brother lived there for a while and some of my best friends uh, lived there. And we've been to countless jazz fests and we've been to countless uh, uh, just party weekends there of different kinds, but we're never able to get there for party grow weekends.
0: Well, supposedly, sooner or later they're going to turn it over to danielle and i to run so okay if you can hang on that long
1: (laughs) i'm not going anywhere dude i'm you know i mean have guitar will travel man
0: (laughs) yes yes so i want to talk about um and you you kind of talked about the tentacles of Saints somewhere and it it we were talking about you know sec football earlier and everything it's kind of like you hear about a coaching tree, you know, the coach, the really successful coach has all these assistant coaches and players that go off and do other yeah. stuff. It's kind of like St. Somewhere is like a tree like that in the trap rock world. Mike Nash and I had this conversation a few months ago about how uh, a lot of these, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a lot of acts that don't necessarily fit the traditional uh, definition of trap rock. Yeah. You know, with, with Southern draw, with drop bed dangerous, with uh homemade wine and, both Melanie how and Micah both told me, you know, that they would not be involved in the trop rock scene if it wasn't for you. And I guess it's fair to say that you wouldn't be involved with it if it wasn't for St. Somewhere. So kind of talk more about that whole, and all these bands came out of East Tennessee who expected, you know, all these trop rock bands to come out of East Tennessee. Well, you know, because, because we got to go to, to that first meeting of the mines, it opened our,
1: our eyes to what was out there that we just didn't know anything about. And then I would go to Atlanta and we made great friends with the Paradise Clubs and, and the members there. And so I always managed to stay in, in it, involved in it. And people, wherever I would play, knew that there would be weekends that I wasn't going to be at my regular gig, that I was going to be at a festival somewhere. They knew that in late October, I was going to be gone for two or three weeks and I was going to be in Key West part of that time. And everybody wanted to know about that. You know, but <clears throat> on a week to week basis, I was playing shows in, in middle and eastern Tennessee and in the southeast. And especially when I was in Knoxville, I was always um, trying to be as inclusive as I could. Um, I would do songwriter events. I would do big jam events. I would have a, a, an epic Christmas party every year. I, I still do that. And I would invite all my friends to come and sit in and be a part of these things. And of course there were fundraisers, just different shows that I would kind of be in charge of and I would bring in new artists. And then when I met Mike, I knew he was a songwriter and I invited him to a couple different jams. Um, I saw that Melanie was playing with some bands around town. I just called her up one day. Somehow I got, you know, I got a phone number four and I called her and I said, you may or may not know me. And, and, You know, this is this is me being totally honest with you. She didn't really know me, but her parents loved me. (laughs) I know. I mean, I hate to admit that, but that's the way it was. Her friends and her parents were way more thrilled about the first time we ever played together than she was. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of like, you know, my mom loves you, that kind of story. Well, that's that's where it started. But I, I knew she was playing around town. And I mean, I was intrigued that there was this girl that could play percussion and was just a go-getter and working hard. And I wanted to jam with her and see what happened. And we just clicked, you know, we spent, we'd, we'd play together and then we'd go out afterwards and have these late night chats about music. And, you know, how do I get into this profession? And, um, I, I would, I would you know, be as, as open as I could and say, you know, you need to get, have a band, you need to play, you need to write songs. And, um, Inevitably, the conversation with whoever it was would say, "Now, why do you go to Key West every year <laughs> you know? right. and I say, "Okay, Paradet, so play for the club here, play for the club in Johnson City, go to Nashville, go to Atlanta, you know go to Louisville, go to Cincinnati, play for the Paradet clubs, establish yourself as an artist, figure out how to get to Key West, and uh, to their credit, they all did that and and you know Todd Sheely was in somewhere, say And his brother, Ryan, I remember going to see Ryan at one of his first gigs. He and Todd played as a duo. And um, Ryan had this big book of lyrics. He was so nervous at his first gig. You know, he knew the songs, but he was afraid he wouldn't remember any of the words. He had this big book on, on a music stand with all the lyrics on it. And he's you know, reading out of it. And I said, man, that was good. You're going to have to learn those words. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and again, to his credit, man, homemade wine kicked ass. When they, when they hit the scene, they came out with Guns Blazing. That band, you know, it was, it was Andy Westcott and uh, it was Tommy John and Todd Shealy, and, uh, I mean, just, it was a great band. They had great songs, great, en- great attitude, great energy. Um, you know, Mike came out swinging. Um, Melanie kind of played with everybody at first until she found her own voice musically. Mm-hmm. when she did by golly she is kicking ass she's man as far as i'm concerned there's nobody better right now at putting out a good product and letting everybody know what's happening than her and kitty
0: yeah uh, they're uh, they're probably the reason you know i've known you forever um as long as i've been around the the scene um but it's only been the last couple of years that we've really started talking much more than just a simple hey how you doing and that's because of kitty and mel uh you know i I count, I count Kitty as one of my best friends. I love Melanie, too. And yeah. I, know, I know they think very highly of y'all, so that's kind of how you and I have gotten to be a little bit better buddies over the last few years. So, yeah, it, it's funny how it all works out in the long run. So and
1: you know, if, if, if you do everything the right way, it comes back around the right way. And we're sitting here right now because of the right way. You know, I mean, if, if, if you're back in touch with me now because of Mel and Kitty and that started so long ago, Thank goodness for all that. Yeah, because that's what it's all about.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's what goes back to the whole idea of uh, you know the community, um, the Chopper Rock community, the, which came from the Parade community. And in many ways, there, in many ways, they're still the same, but in many ways, they're not. Um, but yeah, it all goes back to you know the musicians and those of us who work with the musicians, doing it the right way, and the fans supporting the music and going above and beyond. Often to support the music and and it all works that makes this community a very unique thing that a lot of people, especially a lot of musicians, want to be a part of. So
1: more and more. I mean, i remember when when uh, when John Frenzy brought Aaron in the first time? You know, and Aaron's from here in Nashville too. And um, the first time that he got to a couple festivals, and I saw him one one time here, and he said, "Man, this parroted thing." Is amazing. He said, I'm not going to tell anybody here about it. <laughs> you know, so it's going to be my secret. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the feeling, you know, that people have no idea.
0: Yeah. And now all over people. streets wanting to be part yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy.
1: Well, hey, when, let's when I, up.
0: go ahead. I was going to say, when I moved here, you know, I would, I would go to these songwriters
1: events um, because I moved to Nashville because of songwriting and, and, you know, I, w- I would become a, a part of, of these early songwriter showcases. And of course I'd be on last, but in the showcase, you'd see Pat Alger and you'd see Paul Overstreet and, you know, and you'd see Don Schlitz and occasionally, you know, like uh, some superstar would show up, you know, I get to be on, on the same show as all these people and they probably, probably were at home in bed by the time I went on. But and I saw all these people doing applying their craft, and to do that show um, with you guys and to see Paul Overstreet in Key West for a parrot head show was the coolest thing for me. And I went up to him and I said, man, I used to do shows with you at Mississippi Whiskers. And, and he stopped in his tracks and he got this big smile and he says, well, that's going back a ways, you know. <laughs> But again, coming back full circle, we were playing at that cool venue in Key West at a trop rock event, and there's freaking Paul Overstreet, who's written every hit song that everybody knows, Mm -hmm. hanging out with us at a Paradise festival.
0: It was nuts. Um, Yeah, man. I guess it was February 2019. I'm sitting in a bar with a bunch of my friends, and I get this text message, and it says, Hey, John, my name's Julie Overstreet. I'm Paul Overstreet's wife. I uh I hear that you help put on shows during you know, this week in Key West and I'm like and, and somewhere in there she said, If you don't know who Paul is, Google him and I'm like, I know who Paul Overstreet is, you know. But I'm like, Well this is right. just strange. <laughs> so for a couple of days back and forth I text with this woman and I'm going, This is just somebody's messing with me, you know. So I finally called Eric Babbin and I said, Dude, have you heard from Paul Overstreet's wife? And he goes, Yes, she's been texting me for two or three days, you know, like <laughs> So we were like, is this legit? Is this real? And we were like, well, surely somebody wouldn't, wouldn't be messing with both of us. And then we were like, well, Donnie might. Donnie Brewer might mess with both of us. But it was legit. He showed up, had a great time. Um, Good. It was very rewarding, I think, for a lot of us to see somebody with those credentials show up and, yep. and not try to force their way in, not, you know, just kind of blended right in with everybody.
1: Was, yep. You know. I mean, he was very gracious, you know, of course, when we're, you know, we're doing the best we can. And he said, well, here's a song I wrote for, you know, Randy Travis. We're like, well, hell.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We
1: got nothing.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, Hey, we've talked about, uh, you know, all these other folks enough. I want to talk about you and your music a little bit. Um, let's, let's start with Ramajay. I mean, somehow you got, y'all were on the, I don't know. If the short list is correct, correct, but the semi-shortlist for a Grammy award. We got really darn close. It was it was the most rewarding thing
1: to be a overnight sensation after 30 years of you know <laughs> playing music, but you know to, to, to have had this idea, um, you know whether it was Jeff Allen or you know wh- whoever said trop rock the first time, you know that's that, that has become the name. And the idea that we could be as tropical as anybody, and be as rock as anybody, and to be completely original in our songs—it was—it was just a kernel of an idea. And to take it from that to an album that I'm as proud of as anything I've done—you know—that that that, uh, that record was as amazing a, pro- a product that I've ever put out, and and to of a band that could play anything we asked of them. You know, it was just, it was a real treat. Um, And, you know, Quincy and I would sit down every Monday in, in his, in his store and write every week for probably a year to fine tune these songs. And then when it came time to record a record, we had, we had every resource at our, at our disposal, Two years of playing and contacts, and especially here in Nashville, we had some of the greatest players, some of the greatest studio um, sessions, and people never said you can't do that. You know, they'd say, "Okay, we'll figure it out." You know, and, and you know, suddenly we've got string section, we've got horn sections, we've got everything we could have possibly wanted on that record, and it came out so wonderfully. You know, and then to be accepted by the other musicians. I mean, we were a new band and yet whenever we would play, if we reached out to Sunday Jim to play lead guitar, or Randy Westcott, or, um, I'm trying to think we were, we were, uh, somewhere and, and, Dusty Barber was there and, you know, Dusty tours with Al Green and he, he does all these great things. Yeah. And he was like, I'd love to play with you guys. You know, so we, we had that sort of, it was a camaraderie issue, but it was, also being inclusive, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the word I use with Kitty and Mel all the time, being inclusive. Even our name, Ramage, meant a jam session. You know, Ramage, the word, means an elite jam session in, in Trinidad and Tobago. So our name even kind of defined what we wanted to try and do. We wanted to play music that everybody could
0: be a part of, and um, that project really took off. So how did y'all get into the Grammy? How did the y'all get because, into that machine?
1: <laughs> so we were literally in the studio with Will Kimbrough. And um You know, Will plays and writes and performs and records with everybody in Nashville. And so on any given day, somebody might stop me into the studio and we were playing one day and some guys came in and we were pretty far along in the process. And they were listening to what was coming out of the speakers and they were like, we never thought we would hear world music being recorded in Nashville. So they didn't know the words trop rock to them. All they could think of was this is world music.
0: Right.
1: And they were like, Nashville needs to be represented on the world's stage for more than just country music. We think you guys should you know, apply, tried, tried to get in the mix. And I'm like, okay, how do we do that? And it turns out that I had friends that were involved in the Grammy proceedings and I submitted a record and we made the first round. We made the second round. We made the third round. I'm like, oh, hell, you know. <laughs> so it was uh, a bit of luck and, and a bit of just being as unique as we could.
0: And being pretty damn good. That helps. She so don't get that far without being pretty damn good. That does help. So <laughs> last year you did uh, your 30th anniversary concert. Is that right? Yep. I want to hear more about that.
1: That means I'm an old dude. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, roughly 30 years ago, last October, I recorded a project that for me was a, a milestone. I had taken two or three years of playing colleges and, and everything sort of coalesced into this amazing night where I recorded a live album in, in Knoxville and uh, at a bar called the library, which was brilliant because kids could tell their parents, they were going to the library. And later when I met their parents, they'd say, so you met Jimmy at the library? I could say, yes, ma'am. I did. (laughs) And when I would tell people that two or three or 400 people would show up, on any given Monday night. Nobody believed me until they showed up. And I just felt like I needed to capture that energy and that electricity um, with a live recording. So I made this at the time it was a cassette because that's what happened at that time. And um, have sold tens of thousands of this cassette and later a CD to college kids all over the Southeast. And it just became, it, it sort of defined what I was doing at that time and it gave me something to hang my hat on. And I could send this ahead to people like, well, like what do you do? I was like, well, let me just send you this. And they heard this magical event. And as as last year rolled around, I realized that it would have been 30 years ago. So I decided that in addition to celebrating the 30th anniversary of that recording, that I would also bring in everyone that had ever played with me in the Knoxville, East Tennessee area, if they were willing and available, I would make that a night of, this is our community of musicians. And we had been friends and played together. And everybody said, yes. I mean, to the extent that John Patty called me and said, Hey, um, I hear there's a party. Could I play? I was like, dude, if you show up, you're going to be on stage all night. And to his credit, he did. Wow! And so it was a 30th anniversary for me, but it was also a celebration of the entire 30 years of the music scene in Knoxville and East Tennessee. And um, we recorded and videotaped the entire thing and put together four one-hour shows that we broadcast during the quarantine lockdown on YouTube and and raised. Thousands of dollars for the Joy of Music School. All the proceeds went to charity, so it all went to the Joy of Music School in Knoxville, and we had a grand time. Let me just tell you, it was so much fun. It was the most rewarding thing I've ever done.
0: I remember watching, you know, everybody and their brother sharing videos and pictures on Facebook during it. So yeah.
1: it was great. I mean, people, you know, college towns are great. But when you graduate, people go all over the country. They leave. I had people coming in from Colorado and and Georgia and Texas and Florida and Maine that all came in to relive the glory days of college or that music scene, and not just on stage, but in the audience. People came from all over. And the most rewarding thing, well, one of the largely rewarding things was my Parrothead friends. Would, would, would contact me and say, now, we weren't a part of this, but can we go? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and easily a third of the crowd that night was, was parody people who had no idea who these other people on stage with me were, but they saw the love and the camaraderie and the musicianship and the friendship. And it was just, it was a magical night.
0: Sounds like it, and uh, and it's on YouTube, so people can go check it out.
1: Yep, all four episodes live on my YouTube channel.
0: Four. So, did you take a break, or did you just play straight through for four hours?
1: Dude, I played for seven hours with no break. Wow. I mean, there there were so there were a couple bands like like Mel and Kitty played um, maybe fifteen or twenty minutes. So when they were on stage, I was standing out. But I mean, there was no sitting down. Yeah. You were,
0: working, you were probably working as hard, if not harder, in the crowd than you were on stage. At least.
1: And so here, here's here, to put it in perspective. Christy and I got there the night before, and we got there at about noon to bring everything in that we were going to need. We had, we had made T-shirts for the events. I had some sound stuff that I brought in, things that we needed to have inside. We went back at three, and people were already coming in to save tables. Three in the afternoon. The show didn't start till 7 o'clock at night. By 6, they were on a three-hour wait, and they were at 90% capacity in in this bar until 1 in the morning. Wow. With a line of people waiting to get in. And we started right on time at 7, and we stopped playing at 2.30 because they needed to close the bar at 3, and they needed to get people the hell out of the room before (laughs) the police came in. To, to give him a fine. Wow. So we, we, we fine-tuned it into four hours of four one-hour shows, but we, it was seven hours of videotape. Dang. We, so one of, my, one of my former guitar students has students of his own now, and that band did a set
0: <laughs>
1: of four songs, um, so that was a little break. but played maybe fifteen or twenty minutes uh, of their selves, and then another guy that had moved away and come back. Um, he and his girlfriend did three songs. So I got moments off stage. Yeah. Um, on adrenaline alone, I could have played two or three days.
0: That's Grateful Dead shit, man. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was. It was. I mean, it was. It was a lot like that, you know,
1: because. Everybody that came on stage, I had a connection to, but they might not have had a connection, you know, to Melanie. But if we were playing and Melanie, and I told her this early on, and I told John, Patty, the same thing. If you feel the groove, if something strikes you and you want to join in, feel free. And, and again, they did. And so I'm playing a song with this, with this guy or girl, from twenty years ago, and Melanie's like, Oh, I've got a groove for that. And she'd just jump up on her kit, which was set up, and play. John Patty joined in several times. Songs he didn't even know. That's how you know, he's such a great musician yeah. that he would just jump on stage and play and play. And so so me and, and somebody else that have this history, and like his head's whipping around, like, who's who's playing? And there's John Patty grinning, you know, just you know, adding <laughs> that cool you know, steel drum touch to things, and that happened all night. People just would join in, and it was, it was, it was magical.
0: Well, I have not uh, made the time to go check out any of those videos, but I think I'm going to have to. Uh, you I can have spot to. through them. You
1: know, there's, there's great moments.
0: Yeah, I have some quiet time coming up in the next week without small humans, so I, I may have to pass an hour or two <laughs> with that. <so. laughs>
1: without small humans. That's yeah. a pretty defining sentence right there. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: like it. Uh, well, uh, I want to hear a little bit about your big influences. I know the recent passing of John Prine uh, hits you pretty hard. Who yep. were your growing up? And as you started your music career, who were your big influences and all that?
1: Well, people that know me well understand this, but I mean, I was a keyboard player first. So my early days um, of, of personal influence, I mean, so, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And so I was a real rock and roll kid. Um, and again, I'm an old dude. But my first concert, I literally saw the Beatles. Oh and that sort of opened my eyes to what could be. And my mom, my parents got divorced. My mom, to her credit, allowed me to go to concerts. So I got to see Led Zeppelin, and I saw The Who, and I saw. You know, everybody that there was. But I loved Todd Rundgren, and I loved Keith Emerson, and I loved Billy Joel, all the keyboard people, you know. Mm -hmm. So early on, those were the people that I listened to, Elton John. And then in high school, I realized that I couldn't carry a piano or an organ around with me everywhere I went. And I saw this guy who became, interestingly enough, a a Key West icon, uh, Joel Nelson. And I went to high school together in Virginia beach. Um, and he played guitar and he had all the girls. So I'm thinking, "Hmm, that's interesting. So I took my stepdad's guitar with me to college and at my freshman orientation, I saw these two guys named doc and Merle Watson and doc Watson is, was a, um, Appalachian folk musician and, um, a great guitar player, but he played traditional American mountain music. But because he was such an amazing musician, all these people would come to our little town. I went to Appalachian State University and um, a small little community, but all these people would come to our town because Doc Watson lived there. So in college, I got to see the New Grass Revival and I got to see J.D. Crow in the New South, and, I, and someone gave me this will the circle be unbroken album and my head just kind of exploded with acoustic music. And I started paying attention to James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Dan Fogelberg. And I changed my focus completely on these guys. You know, they were writing songs, they were playing guitar, they were speaking from the heart. And I loved the will the circle be unbroken album because it took, um, these founding fathers of country music, and these young upstarts, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and put them together, and made this amazing record. And uh, I got to see and Newgrass revival was was huge because it was young guys that played bluegrass, but they also played jazz and they played traditional country music, and they were great musicians. And it just it just kind of turned my head around. So I I got asked to be in a band in college. And we played exactly that, a combination of classic rock and country and bluegrass. And when it came time for me to, to graduate, I ended up in Nashville. And uh, ironically, I live probably two miles from the studio from where the Willow Circle be unbroken album was recorded. Wow. You know, Earl Scruggs' his family, um, they're our neighbors. John Hartford, they're our neighbors. You know, and, and I moved here because that acoustic sort of side of things and, and the desire to, to, to speak through songs seemed like it was happening in Nashville. And unlike New York or Los Angeles, um, at the time, you could actually get an appointment to meet with people and songwriters would talk to you in Nashville. And it just seemed like a good place for me to sort of launch my musical endeavors from
0: and that's how you ended up in Nashville. Yep. And it's it's funny, it's only been in the last few years that I uh I realized you lived in Nashville. Yeah. I mean probably for ten at least ten years, I thought you lived in Oxville.
1: Uh, I mean people do that all still to this time. You know, I mean I play there so much and I've got such a loyal and amazing fan base there. Yeah. But I'll never not play there. But Nashville's always been home.
0: Gotcha. Well, I have a few uh, rapid fire questions I want to throw at you, but before we get to that, uh, you know, it's late May, 2020. Um, the world is starting to open up again after the COVID-19 shutdown. So what's coming up on the horizon for you and Christy?
1: Well, we've taken our time together and made the best of it. We, we had discussed writing an, an album together and um, we had two or three songs that we had started the um, two or three songs that we had finished and a bunch of songs that we started and probably the first two or three weeks of quarantine, we really hunkered down and fine-tuned and finished seven or eight songs. We've got three or four more that are almost done. And, and we've started pre-production meetings. We are making a new album of songs, of all original songs that she and I have both co-written. Very cool. It's very exciting, and um, um, the 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 record started. The idea of the record started with a song that uh, Christy began, and then Girls Rule worked on it, and then um, I helped. I, I wrote a bridge to it, and that song is called "Bottle of Whiskey." And that song has been widely accepted by parrotheads at
0: festivals. Yes, I, I know oh. that song.
1: Oh, good, good. Well, that was you know, Christie's first real foray into writing songs. And then she and I, in addition to getting along as, as human beings, we found out that we write well together, which is a real bonus. Right. And we've taken this time together to, to write and, um, and discuss the production values of, of a record. And probably in about three weeks, we're going to start tracking a new record.
0: Awesome. And hopefully those of us who are still going to Key West at the end of October will, will get to pick up a copy there, if not before. So. Well,
1: um, that, that's our goal. You know, like the, the, the studio was like, when do you want to have this done? I said, well, I want to have a product in hand halfway through October so we can take this with us to Key West.
0: There you go. That's, that's everybody's plan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. But for us, it's, it's a major thing because we will have written every song on the record and uh you know this for for christy she's really excited as am i to do this project together
0: well cool congratulations i'm going to go ahead and congratulate you just even on the concept and uh and writing a bunch of songs together in quarantine and not killing each other or worse you know so (laughs) that is a bonus (laughs) and i'll congratulate you again uh when the record comes out in the fall so thanks (laughs) all right are you ready for uh um rapid fire questions
1: Do I need a couple – do I need a drink first or am
0: I good? Well, you know what? That's one of the rapid-fire questions is, what's your favorite cocktail?
1: I I don't drink cocktails. Um, I I drink – I like liquor, but I I don't mix it very much. Um, If I'm in public, I like drinking tequila, and I like aged tequila a lot. But if I'm at home, I like um, the things that they do up in Kentucky. They call bourbon. I'm a big fan. And I like what they do in the Caribbean. I like aged tequila high-end rums so when i'm at home i'm a rum or bourbon guy
0: and in public you're tequila yeah
1: oh well, yeah because
0: so. tequila for me
1: is an upper
0: i'm the I'm same way I, same way
1: well i mean you give me tequila i start telling stories and i'm happy and every, the world is good and i never feel bad the next day there you go knock on wood
0: it's yeah and I always knock on wood so I, I think after what you just told me um, a minute ago, I could guess who your favorite songwriting partner is. But if you could write with anybody in the world that you haven't written with before, who would it be?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um,
0: I want to write a song with Will Kimbrough. Ah, I, think, I and, think you could make that happen without a whole lot of effort. I could. And, and, and I've got a few kernels of ideas that I'm, I'm, I'm considering throwing his way. All right. Well, maybe that could be the album after the, this album. So This is my fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite Jimmy Buffett song? Death of an Unpopular Poet. Ooh, that's a good one. I love that song. All right. Favorite Buffett album? Oh, gosh. Can there be a tie? Sure.
1: Okay, so you had to be there because that captures the moment that I got to open for Buffett the first time. That was like 1978. Uh, that was the first time I got to open for Buffett, and that captures that moment in a nutshell. But then I love Barometer Soup.
0: I, I kind of I feel like Barometer Soup is probably underrated in the. Uh, I think so too. There's, there's several albums in the whole, I, I don't know, maybe 85 to 2005 range. There were some clunkers in there, but there were also several that I think were really underrated so
1: and I, and I have a feeling this is not the answer to your question but I have a feeling like there's going to be a renaissance with this new record from what I've heard from what from what I've heard of the songs and from what I've heard from people that were involved it seems like we're hearkening back to those Halcyon days of, of uh, the Buffett that we've we used to come in, that we used to love and yeah. brought us all together I
0: think I think this album is going to be really good Ah, I, I, you know, I have not checked it out yet. I should probably shouldn't admit that I'll get in trouble, but yeah.
1: Well, there, it's easy to find down at the Lottie da That's
0: a good song. That's the new release. New release. Okay. I'll check have. it out. So, okay. Favorite beach. Oh goodness. Um,
1: Christy and I were, were, were lucky enough to be at a place called the Pacific Island Club on the Island of Saipan when they were at 20% occupancy, that place was incredible. Um, aside from that, I would probably say um, we like orange beach mobile, that area,
0: the land of Eric Erdman. Yes. And many other, we brothers. like him a lot. Brit, Brit Burns, all kinds of cool folks.
1: Well, we'll deal with Brent Burns, but we really like, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Brett. joke. <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke. Uh, I've been in jail with Brent Burns.
0: I could believe that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've got pictures.
0: So, uh, uh, favorite song by an independent trap rock artist?
1: Um, "Blackbeard's Navy" by uh, by Sunny
0: Good answer. I really like that one. That's a. Good one. And uh, last question: If you were to sculpt a Mount Rushmore of trap rock artists. Independent Trap Rock artist, so Jimmy Buffett's not eligible. Who would be on it? It's uh,
1: relatively easy. Um, Jim Morris, Sonny Jim, John Frenzy. All dear friends, but they help define what we call Trap Rock, in, in, my, in my humble opinion. Um, those three guys would be, without a doubt, the, the first three I would nominate.
0: And if you could stick one a non musician member of the community on there, who would it be? Oh, I can get myself in trouble with a lot of people. <laughs> um that's the fun of these. Right. I'm gonna go with Pete Trainer.
1: I recognize that name it. I can't Well so here here's the thing. When I met Pete and and Pete has has matured in uh, in a nice way, but when I met Pete originally, he would carry around a uh, a backpack cooler full of Jello shots. Okay. I mean, he he would probably have spent uh, weeks filling this thing and and in the refrigerator full and going to an event, and you would see him handing out Jello shots all day, every day. For three or four days in a row, and then <laughs> the second generation of that would be a fellow named Biz. Have you met Biz?
0: Biz uh, Blakely makes something. Um,
1: Blazinski. Blazinski.
0: Yes, I'm. I'm pretty sure we're talking about the same person. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: Biz is the newer version of what Pete used to be. Pete has calmed himself. Amazing. <laughs> So Biz is the reincarnation of the early Pete trainer. Uh, Like We were at um, Music on the Bay and recently, and Biz said, it looks like it's going to rain. You should hold my umbrella. And I was <laughs> like, Biz, it's not even cloudy. And he gives me a wink and a nod, and the umbrella handle opens up, and it's full of top-shelf tequila. That's so. Those uh, okay. Again, it's a tie. Pete Trainer and Biz. Those are my quintessential parrothead guys that make sure everyone around them is drunk. That is not afraid to do anything that's asked of them in public.
0: There we go. Well, Paul, thank you very much for visiting with me. I enjoyed it.
1: I've really enjoyed. Recently, in the last couple of years, getting to know you better, we, 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 Quincy and I did one of these with Earl, and you weren't there. Yep. And so I, I followed the podcast back in the early days and have watched what you have done in Key West and online and throughout Texas. And I'm a huge fan. But until the last couple of years, I didn't really know you well. And I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit then. And I've really enjoyed tonight.
0: Well, I'm glad you uh, enjoyed tonight. I certainly did. Yeah, I think uh, I think that time when y'all came and played the Galveston Bay Christmas party, I think I was in Arkansas with my kids for Christmas. Uh, That's correct. Uh, and I That's think good. so. But, yeah, missed out on that. But, uh, yes, uh, I shared the same feeling um, last couple of years, getting to know you and hang out a little bit. has been fun. And uh, we will do it again. Hey, tequila's on me next time. Deal. Okay. That's the deal. All right, Paul. Have a good night. Thank you much. Take care.